sponsors. Let's get booze. Listen to A. Thompson for an hour. I'd rather fuck a blood relative. It's A. Thompson. Ladies and gents, welcome to episode 153 of Aid Thompson and Other Disappointments, your twice, sometimes thrice weekly delve into the worlds of politics, dystopia, and all-round awfulness. Uh, Why would somebody make a podcast about how terrible the world is, Aid? Well, because the world is cruel, it's emotionally bruising, and it's better if we just, you know, try to find the funny in it. So that's what we do here. It's gallows humour, it's doom lols. Uh, with, a, you know, a sprinkling, a helping of insightful conversation uh, where necessary. A special shout out to the Patreon backers, a doff of the cap to you all. It was, uh, it was great to meet you again last week at the Riot Society Night in Soho. I'm um, looking forward to the April meetup. That's coming up soon. That'll be in London. Um, more about the Patreon and the benefits, add-ons and exclusives that you get uh, for as little as £3 a month. Um, we'll go into that towards the end of the show. Now... My guest tonight, let me take you back, people, to 2016. Uh, No, I'm not going to jump straight into Brexit, don't worry. But in 2016, I was working for a broadcasting conglomerate in Osterley in West London. And I lived in Guildford, which for those of you who don't know about the, you know, M25 geography, that's about 40, 45 minutes away. And so every day I would drive home from the office from about four And I started listening to LBC and I guess this was the beginning of my radicalization into politics. My guest tonight has a lot to answer for, uh, frankly. Uh, Brexit was the big thing. Everyone was talking about it in some capacity. And I found myself listening to this chap who, although it's fair to say he and I come from different places on the political spectrum, I found his way of answering callers, uh, providing comment, analysis, of the stories that that were unfolding at the time, I found him very engaging and reasonable. And uh, yeah, one of the reasons I was so keen to get him on the show for you guys to listen to, uh, if indeed, you know, you've not happened across him before, which, you know, you probably will have done, um, was because obviously it's a very divisive time in politics. Clearly both the left and the right mock each other relentlessly. Um, Politics a lot of the time is little more than a sport right now it descends into tribal nonsense but occasionally you might happen across someone with whom you think you can engage you know politically from the other side of the fence and with whom you can actually discuss things rather than you know quote-unquote debate and then come away with two minutes of clickbait ranting or whatever for twitter anyway look tonight's guest is one of these reasonable voices from across the fence i'm excited to have him on ladies and gents broadcaster and author mr ian dale welcome to the show thank you thank you very much i've never been introduced as a disappointment before but um i i I guess i've got an hour to prove it yes well absolutely (laughs) uh you're breaking new ground with us here tonight um how are you doing ian you okay I'm very tired because I've done two mornings of Good Morning Britain and you have to get up at 10 past five. And it, at the age I am now, it just completely knocks me out for the rest of the day. But um, I, I've, I've, I've taken an ecstasy pill to get, get the energy <laughs> levels up a bit. So that's a joke, by the way, for any tabloid newspaper people that are watching. Yeah, you know The Guardian will be straight on your case. Like, yeah, you know, exactly. Conservative voice Ian Dale admits to drug yeah. use on podcasts. I mean, it'd be yeah. great for me. <laughs> but, well, um, I hate to disappoint you, but I've never taken a drug in my life, and I'm not likely to start now. Oh man, you should. They're great. You're really missing out. <laughs> um, Ian, I would like to get a little bit of background from you because I'm. I mentioned, you know, how I became familiar with you and your work uh, on my my drive home, um, but others might not be so familiar. And and you've got this whole backstory before you came to LBC. So could you sort of take us? on that journey could you take us through your career trajectory in terms of how you landed at lbc wow um (laughs) i mean i suppose i've been involved in politics or media for most of my working life um 
I run a couple of publishing companies, predominantly publishing political books, uh, Biteback Publishing, which is still going strong. I had a political bookshop in Westminster for a few years from 97 onwards, uh, which became a bit of an institution. Um, I start, Well, I was one of a team that started Britain's first internet TV station back in 2006, the days before smartphones, the days before people really got used to watching things on their laptops. Um, we're a bit ahead of, ahead of our time. It's called 18 Doughty Street. It was a bit like GB News, I suppose, but sort of just right. like a discuss, discussion program. Um, if we got a couple of hundred viewers each night, I'd be surprised. Though the number of people that say to me even now, oh, I used to watch you on 18 Doughty Street. I thought, well, if you did, we'd probably still be going. Um, it's funny because like here I am thinking I'm taking this mainstream news journalist <laughs> guy into the new world of the internet. And lo and yeah. behold, you've got this whole fucking internet broadcasting back yeah sorry carry on. I, I i was one of britain's first political bloggers along with guido fawkes tim montgomery at conservative home that was really i suppose where i became a little bit of a name um first movers always get that and um i did my blog up until about 2010 when i gave it up when I, really when i started at lbc because there were only so many hours in, in the day and of course twitter really overtook blogging or maybe not not by that time but certainly within a couple of years and um and i still have a blog on my website but i don't update it that often now i suppose things uh, i tend to i don't actually enjoy writing i know it's a weird thing to say given i've written quite or edited quite a lot of books but <laughs> yeah. i i, the, I the much prefer yeah, I much prefer speaking. Writing can be a little bit of a chore. I'm, I'm in the middle of finishing a book at the moment um, called Kings and Queens. And although other people have written most of it, they each write an essay about each monarch. I've just finished writing the Ford for it. And um, I mean, that was that was OK. But I, if I write a column for the Daily Telegraph, for example, I always think they're going to send it back saying this is rubbish start again, because I know that I can't write like sort of David Aronovich, Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, whoever. Um, uh, for me, it's a sort of almost a, a stream of consciousness. And I, I don't have that sort of flowery language that, that they have. But uh, they never have sent one back. So I suppose it can't be that bad. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that's like, I mean, is that modesty or is that like imposter syndrome? No, it's not modesty. It's complete imposter syndrome. And I've... I've I still have it in a lot of aspects of what I do. I know that I, I know that I'm a decent broadcaster. I've, I've won Radio Presenter of the Year twice. And you kind of don't win that if you're if you're bad. But I still think I'm not the finished article. I've been doing it now for 13 years, and I still think there there are things that I can really improve on. And I think the moment you you become complacent is probably the moment to give up. And uh, I've seen people over the years who. You think they're just going through the motions they get in sort of 10 minutes before their program starts and leave immediately it finishes and you think well if it's just a, a normal thing for you it's probably best to quit and i still get excited because you you do new things every day when when you were listening to me when i was doing the drive time program you never knew what was going to be in the news agenda it was a very exciting time politically uh, and what you said at the beginning actually is is one of the biggest compliments that you can pay me because if i hooked you in i mean that is my job to do that mm. uh, and I often get emails from parents saying, you've got my 14-year-old daughter really interested in politics. And I, that really sort of warms my, my the cockles of my heart in a way because yeah. I, I've always – most of my working life I've spent – actually trying to promote politics as a good thing and trying to get people interested in it and not just be cynical and it's incredibly difficult nowadays given the strictures of social media um but politics is, is a noble profession and and it shouldn't just be seen as something that cynical people engage in mm, mm, yeah i mean i think so that the, the skill set that you possess that that's uh, kept me listening at that time and I think is a really important one to celebrate when people do uh, adopt it or, or allow it to flourish uh, is the ability to leave the point scoring on the side and instead actually consider what the other person is saying and reason and then form a conclusion that makes sense that is accessible to people that's quite a rare thing like especially like i mean i was listening to you in 2016 but it's only gotten worse right like in the last four or yeah. five years um the idea that we can have a, a measured reasonable debate with quote unquote the other side it, it feels like those days have been and gone now i don't know if it feels different to you actually in the thick of it in in media but 
to an outsider well, it feels like you've just articulated why i wrote a book in 2020 called why can't we all just get along shout less listen more and i mean i thought it was actually quite an important book to write because the the, the level of public discourse in this country is now i think at an all-time low now you've always had rumbustious politics heated debates and there's nothing wrong with that but when you get to the point that people just want to listen to people in their own echo chambers where they they don't even believe that the other side has a right to a point of view let alone express it Mm. then i think you're heading for a really really dark age of public discourse and so the book was all about trying to diagnose why that's happened and what we can do about it and in the end it is all about us as individuals. I mean, I've had plenty of Twitter spats where I know that I've gone over the top, where I've sort of called people things that I shouldn't have done. And I've tried to dial that down now. I'm not saying that I'm 100% successful, but instead of calling someone a twat on Twitter, I'll call them a Muppet. Well, that's that's kind of progress, isn't it? <laughs> I guess so, yeah. I mean, like, so I was going <laughs> to... I was going to touch on like what you think the drivers are then for this kind of dissent in, in the discourse. Uh, I mean, the obvious place to start would be social media, but I also feel like the influence of social media has bled out into the mainstream media now. So where before, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, a little bit before I was really into politics, but my sense is that back then you would have Question Time or Newsnight or a political current affairs show that would examine a topic and they would have somebody from the left and somebody from the right. But overall, it would come off as... Un- unbiased un yeah. sensationalized uh now it feels like like on twitter absolutely you have these echo chambers we all know that but it also feels like mainstream media sort of buy into that with clickbait videos and they what like i think there was a thing last week where um the activist patsy stevenson was approached by piers morgan or his producers to appear on his show and they said outright in the email in the introduction the invite you know, we would like a like spicy debate. We want you to argue with Pitt. And I'm like, yeah. I'm reading this thinking, this is not, like, <laughs> this is not responsible. This is not useful. Is this really debate? This is all staged. Well, I think sometimes it is. And to me, that is the wrong way to approach things. I never go into an interview, for example, determined to have a gotcha moment. Mm. I, I just think those interviews don't serve the viewer very well. And nobody gets anything out of them. Um, If somebody says something really stupid or if I think they're lying, whether it's a politician or whether it's a caller on the show, sure, I'll call them out and I'll call them out in a fairly strong manner. But I don't don't think it's right for a, a presenter or an interviewer to adopt an approach that just tries to foment a row. Um, I sometimes have um, issues with the social media people on LBC where they will clip something that I've said and put some lurid headline on it. It goes viral and my Twitter feed is unreadable for two days. Yeah. And, and, and there have been times when I'm thinking, well, no, that's the opposite of what I said. So it frustrates me as well. But the trouble is that there is a balance to strike here because you, you are on a speech radio station, you're, you are judged by your audience n- numbers. And I think people fall into the trap of thinking you have to be a shock jock to get the audience. Well, mm-hmm. Piers Morgan, who I think is actually a really good interviewer and a really good presenter, and actually a very nice person if you meet him privately, I think that he he's kind of cultivated this image sometimes, and it, it's slightly come back to bite him on occasion. Um, I... I I mean, on the the whole, I mean, I don't really want to get into, I'm so bored of talking about Brexit. But whenever I do a Brexit phone-in now, which is increasingly rare, thank God, um, they just tend to descend into the same debates that we were having in 2016. And you think, well, can we not move on? Can we not look to the future rather than say, well, I was right, Brexit's been terrible, et cetera, et cetera. Or, um, no, I defend Brexit because it's done this, that and the other. It's not interesting. It, 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 It switches people off. So I've got to the point now where I much prefer doing subjects that are nothing to do with politics. Um, I, I like I do a mental health phone in, or um, I did one the other day on the menopause, which um, I was sort of slightly nervous about, but it actually went really well. And I like to do things that, that challenge not just me, but also the listeners, where you're not... I mean, look, any fool of a presenter can do a phone in on immigration or benefits and... Um, I don't know, climate change, and get a full switchboard of calls immediately. 
that's what you do when you're having a bad day and you can't really you haven't got any original thoughts what you should be doing is thinking of um uh subjects that may not get a full switchboard but from a listener's point of view they're really going to challenge you i did one i said to my producers um it's about a year ago now i can't remember what there was some news hook for this let's do a phone in on male rape i.e men who've been raped mm. i mean it's one of the last taboos in in society really in a sense in that it's not talked about in polite society and they thought i was mad they thought no one would phone in and i said no 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 they will and within a few minutes we had a full switchboard of calls uh, and that was and i extended it to two hours in the end because it was so fascinating it's the sort of phone in where you don't you can't have you can't just have two minute phone calls people have got a story they want to tell yeah. they want to talk about their feelings how it made them feel how they've coped with it afterwards and so some of them will go on for 10 or 15 minutes and as, as long as they're pretty articulate you, you let them do it now that's the kind of phone in that i really get a kick out of doing something that um where you know that people if you were driving home from Osterley to guildford you would actually sit in your car when you got home so you didn't miss a second of it and i and i often get emails from people saying oh my god that was so powerful i couldn't get out of my car and um and again that that's the sort of thing which you wouldn't get if you were doing a brexit phone in for example yeah i suppose it's it's there there's a piece there around finding the thing that other people aren't talking about yeah. but then and it's not so, always possible yeah and there are days when there's very little news about and and we do kind of there's no rule that says we a phone in has to be hooked to some news story that <coughs> excuse me some news story of the day but that's generally what you try and do I mean I I said to my producer yesterday I said let's do a phone in on legalizing prostitution tonight go and find a way we can do that for the news and there was no news hook to do that um, but that just puts the seed in their mind that when there is we we will do it and why do you, do you mind if I ask why is there this sort of appetite to hook a phone in on something that has been presumably reported in the press that morning well because it, i i suppose it's because that's what people will be talking about down the dog and duck mm. um and you, you kind of want to reflect what people are talking about i mean for example last night i mean we're recording this for people who are watching it in two years time we're recording it in uh, february 2023 and there's this tragic case of a woman who's disappeared in lancashire and there's a big debate about how the police have handled the investigation mm -hmm. and we did a phone in on that which i have to say i did not enjoy at all because i as a presenter you're walking a real tightrope on subjects like that because you don't want to go over the top in the criticism of the police because you i mean i, I don't know all the facts I, i'm not involved in the investigation but it is something that everybody's talking about so you've got to do it in a, in a responsible manner but not speculate too much and I, I remember getting to the end of that hour and just saying to my producer through the glass i did not enjoy that at all now we got through it nothing went wrong but I, I don't really like feeling like, like that at the end of an hour. Yeah, I suppose there's a sort of mix, like, on the one hand, it's a very uncomfortable thing because it's still developing. We don't know what happened to her. Uh, and then on the other hand, I guess there's a legal angle to it. Like, you can't, you don't want to prejudice well, an investigation. Not, well, you don't want to prejudice an investigation. I'm not sure there is a legal angle to it. I mean, there are Ofcom rules, I suppose, that obviously you have to adhere to. Um but it's like you know that everybody is talking about it. Everybody's got their own pet theory about sort of the, the different scenarios that there could be. And even now I'm kind of choosing my words carefully. Yeah. Um, but there are so many different subjects where as a presenter you do have to be aware that there are limits. For example, I've been on air uh, when there have been terrorist attacks, which I have to cover live as a, a rolling news story. Mm. And again, you know, you probably think you know exactly who's behind it. But you can't just sort of go there until you've got some sort of evidence for it. And there are times when, and I'll give you an example, back, at, well, I can't remember when it was, seven or eight years ago. Do you remember when that um, plane went down over uh, Ukraine? And we all knew it was the Russians that had shot it down, but I mean, <laughs> you, you couldn't say that categorically. Yeah. But all we knew at that point when it happened was that a plane had gone down over Ukraine. Yeah. So you get instructions from above to say, right, you need to go into rolling news mode now, which means that you don't just talk about anything else. That is the only subject for discussion. 
Well, that that sorts you out as a presenter and tells you whether you can do the job because there are some there are presenters who just go to pieces when there's breaking news and can't do it. And um, I, mean, I can remember one in particular. Where it just because you can't just keep repeating. Well, let me bring you the breaking news that uh, a plane has gone yeah. down over Ukraine. We don't know anything else, but let me bring you the breaking news that a plane has gone down over Ukraine. What you've got to do is keep people listening even though you've got no information and there is a certain skill to that. Now you can interview security experts and all the rest of it. And you've got the, the sort of producers, little beavers working upstairs to get people on to effectively bail you out as a presenter. Yeah. But it, it it's, it's very exciting. I mean, the adrenaline really flows. Um, and it like, I mean, it's a terrible, it's a terrible thing to say that when you enjoy covering a terror attack, because yeah. it, it just sounds crass, but I do. <laughs> But do you like so is there let, let's say you go into rolling news mode is there like sort of three or four researchers then behind the scenes who are like look let's find out the last four times that this happened we can talk about that for a little bit let's talk about people who have been to this town before and then let's that'll fill five minutes is it that sort of stuff yeah it, it's all hands to the pump it's not what you've got as well certainly i can't speak for other radio stations I and mean, the bbc obviously is such a huge organization that they they will have loads of people that they can deploy um, but basically, most of our newsroom, if the producers from the programme before you go on and the producers from the programme after, every, it's all hands to the pump. And um, I mean, I, I can remember one time, I can't remember what the story was, but I kept thinking, why am I getting nothing? Nothing's coming on my screen. I'm getting no details. What are they all doing? Yeah. And, and But you still have to keep going. I suppose it's like um, the clock is ticking down and you're just thinking, like, are they going to give me something? And he's saying, so like, yeah, exactly. This sounds like a sort of. You know, I, I don't know what it's like. Well, I was about to say I don't know what it's like to work in the newsroom. I My dad was in the business and I uh, did a work experience placement with him. Funnily enough, the only time I did a work experience place like that, and it was just as 9-11 happened. So it was like like in a newsroom, everything's normal. I'm making tea and yeah. then the world ended. Um, but um, but my, my uh, perception of this life, working in newsrooms, responding to that kind of change imminently having to think on your feet am i going too wide of the mark if i say like it, like if i if i lived that life i think when i retired in my like 50s or 60s is there a risk of like post-traumatic stress or something or you know or depression like missing the no. buzz of it or... well i mean i can't speak for other people and um thanks for saying that people retire in their 60s i've just turned 60 so you're basically pensioning me <laughs> off thanks a lot for that um no i don't think so you look it's very easy for broadcasters and journalists to say well obviously i have to stay detached from the story i don't stay detached from the story do you remember the day lee rigby was murdered back in 2013 i'd only been doing drive for three months and I'd been on LBC for about two and a half years at that point. Mm. And I was still a little bit of a novice, I suppose. Um, and I thought, well, yes, I can do this. But that that day when Lee Rigby was murdered, I was on air for four hours. And just before I went on air, we had a call from somebody who'd seen a tweet that I'd send out saying, if anybody saw something, can you give us a call? And he was about six feet away when Lee Rigby had his head chopped off. Jesus. Um, and so he came on and talked about it in fairly graphic detail, which again, at four o'clock in the afternoon, mothers, well, maybe fathers also taking yeah. their kids home from school. You, you, There are rules about how graphic you can be. Now, I made an executive decision at that point that I was going to let him say exactly what he wanted to say because I felt it was important that the facts were reported. Now, that guy, um, that interview went on Sky every half an hour for the next 24 hours. Right. Uh, we only got that interview because he'd seen my tweet. The rest of the media tried to get to him in a really horrible, horrible way. Um, and we felt a duty of care towards him, not just on that day, but afterwards, um, which is a lot more than his employers ever did because I spoke to him a few months later and said, um, well, I hope you had some time off to get over it because he was clearly traumatised by it. Who wouldn't be? Mm. Um, but his employers didn't give him any time off at all. And I said, well, I hope you've had a holiday. And he said, no, I, I, I can't. 
can't go on holiday because well, I can't remember what the reasons were now. And I then found myself saying, well, look, would you like to have my house in Norfolk for a week just to sort of try and get over it for a little bit? So you you do you do get involved in, in, in yeah. these things. And when somebody rings up telling you that they're about to take their own life, for example, I mean, you don't forget that in a hurry. And you can't just sort of eventually the, the phone call finishes and you, you move on. But at the end of the programme, you're thinking, well, I wonder what's happened to them. And I've had occasions where people then phoned back the next day. In fact, there was one guy phoned back the next day and said, I did try and kill myself. But I, I heard what you and Laura, my producer, had said. And I thought about it. And I phoned 999. And they came. And here I am. And, I mean, during COVID, you had all sorts of terrible stories that people were telling and I know three people that are alive today because we did a mental health hour. Mm. And they said, had we not done that, that they were going to end their lives. And so th there is a huge responsibility on you as a broadcaster, which doesn't always go through your mind when you're on air. But there are some subjects where you it really gets to you. But I think in terms of when I'm 70 and sort of in the um, Worthing Retirement Home for Bewildered Broadcasters, am I going to suddenly have a breakdown because I remember some of these more tragic calls? No. I, no. I, I mean, I'm I lucky. I'm fascinated by mental health and depression, but I've never suffered from it myself. Yeah. I just wondered, like, because... So my my mum was a secretary uh and my dad was a local radio dj before he got into news and um my dad just can't give it up like he's still like writing scripts for documentaries and stuff now um my mum has no it like fine with retirement but there's something in that it's like you i think yeah. if you feel that purpose and you enjoy for want of a better word you know responding to these stories in a quick fast passionate compassionate way um i just think if you are then ejected is probably the right uh, the wrong word like if you step back from it and you just retire yeah uh i, I personally i would i would be like ah you know what, what do i do with myself or i would be in like post-traumatic stress but um but yeah um, listen I, I there's something else i wanted to touch on and we're you know we're gassing away here so i just want to make sure i'm getting my questions into you um the, the big thing, the main thing I wanted to to pick your brain on uh, this evening was the changing shape uh, and character of the Conservative Party. Um, so I mentioned in my intro earlier... You realise everyone's going to switch off now. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. I mean, like, one of the things about this show is, like, I, I, I at least pretend to be objective and, you know, to be intellectually curious in, you know, I, I want to get information from both sides and like even just a second ago as you were talking about your empathy for these people who phone in and say that they're going to take these drastic decisions you know i think that's a really refreshing thing to hear somebody who would identify as conservative say because the the caricature of uh, tories is that um they are unfeeling they're sociopathic they they're just out for themselves and so on and it's important to get exposure to the other side in in that fashion so so in that spirit um I think I mentioned in the intro that you come off or you came off when I first started listening uh, to you as, as reasonable and measured and considered. And I know that you ran as a candidate for the Conservative Party in 05, uh, back when things were still relatively sane. Um, so you've been around the block, <laughs> so to speak. So where we're at now, right, from an outsider's perspective, it feels like the Conservatives have changed from being this party of fiscal responsibility, the natural party of government, the party of grown-ups who come in and clean up the mess when Labour get us into the global financial crash, all of that business. That was how I, and I think, you know, a lot of people used to look at the Conservatives. But now it feels like that has completely switched. And I'm just curious to get your perspective on that for someone who is still ingrained in conservative culture, I assume. Do you recognise that shift? Do you still identify as a conservative? Do you, like, how has how's things changed for you? Well, I identify as being on the centre-right. Um, right. Do I identify as a conservative? That is a really good question. I'm not sure I can even answer it because, um, I mean, I was, you're right, from, my, from probably the age of 18, 19, right through till a few years ago, I would have happily described myself as a Thatcherite conservative. Right. 
Um, the events of the last few years, and it's not just because of Brexit. I mean, I, I voted for Brexit, but although I didn't actually say so on the radio until after it had happened, contrary to popular rumour, everyone thinks I was one of the main cheerleaders for it. Um, I only decided to vote leave after David Cameron failed to get a better deal from the EU a few months before the referendum. Um, so I was never uh, an ingrained leaver. I used to do speeches for the European movement back in the 1980s. Right. Um, so I, I'm not a die-hard Brexiteer. Having said that, um, I still think it was the right thing to do, and I think that will eventually be proved right. I, I may be wrong, but uh, I, I, I would still vote the same now if there was a, if there was a referendum tomorrow, which a lot of people have a real issue with me saying, mm. because like you, they say, "Oh yes, but you're so reasonable. You're you're you're, you're a nice conservative, and all the rest of it." Um, but you have this blind spot about Brexit. And I think, well, how fucking patronising can you get? Um, I'm, I'm, I've literally I mean, never I... heard you drop the F-bomb before, but that's great. Oh, no, but, well, you've yeah. obviously never listened to my For The Many podcast that I do with Jackie Smith. You, you'd get a lot more than that, I can yeah. tell you. Okay. Um, so I... But I find myself in a position now where I cannot say to you, I will vote Conservative at the next election. Right. Now, I, I have voted Conservative for every general election, bar one, and that was only a protest vote against John Major in 97 when I think I voted UKIP in a constituency where Labour were going to just win anyway. So it had no <laughs> no effect at all. Yeah. And UKIP, hadn't. I don't think anybody had even really heard of them at that point. Um, I've voted for other parties in local elections. Um, in fact, I think I've voted five different ways in the last seven years. So uh, my, my attachment to the Conservative Party is sort of dri dripping away. Um, I still do, um, I speak at Conservative Association fundraisers and sell my books there. But uh, would I would I go and do a lot of these things where I'm not selling books? Possibly not. If I get invites from the Labour part, local Labour parties or Liberal Democrats, I go and do them. I think I've only done a couple, but I'm happy to go and do them. And so I don't feel that political affiliation that I, I once did. I, I would not go out and campaign any anymore but i'm still seeing i mean i was approached last year to run for mayor of london for the conservatives next time and i just laughed in their face i said well <laughs> um i would hate the campaign i would be used I, I think i'd be quite good at doing the job but i wouldn't be a good candidate and there's a slight problem in that i don't i don't live in london <laughs> yeah, yeah they said oh that doesn't matter and i thought well no it really does actually yeah um so i i think that there are still do you think I mean, you're you're, are you bucking the trend? You know, the, the sort of cliche is that you start off early in life as a liberal, yeah. uh, a visionary, an idea. Well, I did, I did start as a liberal. I was actually a member of the Liberal Party for six months in 1978 before I became no a shit. conservative. Yeah. And then, OK, so then you were an uh, like early bloomer to then go conservative. But normal people, I guess, well, normal statistically, uh, yeah. people in their 40s, I guess, uh, begin to go conservative. Uh, you are slowly, you said, your support for them is dripping away. <laughs> yeah. So is it like well, well, ne this time well, next year you'll go full on liberal? Or I mean, I think that the, the older you get, you encounter the harsh realities of life. And I think people on the left tend to be much more idealistic than necessarily than people on the right. And as you... Um, get more responsibility, start a family, own a house and all the rest of it. I think sometimes that I don't think it's actually becoming more right wing. I think people have always had that in their in, in their heads, but it, maybe it sort of comes to the fore a little bit more as you get older. So, um, I mean, obviously, you'll be on a bit of a journey soon, Adrian. Um, <laughs> but you're right. I, I think I've become I've I'm still, I would say, a fiscal conservative. Mm. But on social issues, I'm wet as a lettuce. Mm. I mean, I probably have more left-wing views than you do on immigration or uh, crime and punishment or benefits, that sort of thing. And part of that is because of my job at LBC. Mm. When you listen to three 55-year-old men, one after another, break down in tears on live radio when they're talking about the bedroom tax and the effect that it's had on them... Mm. I mean, you kind of think something's wrong. Now, I can, I can articulate a theoretical argument for the bedroom tax. But when you look at see, and see how it works in practice, you, you then have to doubt whether it's a policy that should be um, implemented in the way that it is. Same, same with universal credit, which actually I think has been a success generally, but I mean, a hugely difficult thing to do. And initially, I think a lot of people had a lot of problems because of it. And I mean, I'll give you an example of that. During COVID, I had a caller who rang up and said, I'm a 67-year-old woman 
Um, I'm about to uh, get to, or my, no, I'm about to get my 67th birthday, and the pensions people have told me that I won't get my pension for six months because they've got a backlog. Yeah. And she said, and I'm on universal credit, and the universal credit people have told me it'll end on my 67th birthday. So what am I going to do for six months? Yeah. And I thought, well, if that's happening to you, it's probably happening to thousands of other people. Now, I'm in a very lucky position where I can pick up the phone to the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, and they'll take my call. So that's exactly what I did. And I said, look, you, you might have a bit of a big hot potato here soon if there are a lot of these people. So anyway, Therese Coffey asked her civil servants to look into it. And I think, if my memory's right, there were 35,000 people in this situation. Right. Which, at the top of that department, they didn't know about until I told them, because this lady had phoned in and told me. See, that's what's now, so infuriating about this stuff, is you get this idea in your head, or certainly I do, that the people that rise to the top of government are supposed to be the best and brightest. And I know that sometimes, for political reasons, people are promoted perhaps above the, the, the uh, ability, like their natural talents for... Um, you know, back scratching. You mean reasons. just like in any business or in any school or in any hospital? I well, mean, politics is a reflection of society in general. That doesn't, doesn't just happen in politics. Yeah, but doesn't politics have to be better? Doesn't, you know, it's, it's oh, supposed to be... Oh, get off your be... high horse. No, come on. I mean, like, public <laughs> office, you're supposed to... I mean, you said earlier, like, it should be a noble profession. Like, you yeah, go it should into be. it to help people. It should be. But in reality, you can, have all the, you can have all the ideals you want. But in the reality, there are bad apples in politics, just as there are in any other walk of life. Do you think... Do, do you know, let me let you into a little secret. Sure. There are bad nurses in this country. <laughs> but you get, oh, you get strung up if you ever suggest that there might be. Look, I'm sure there's bad nurses. I'm sure there's bad doctors. Uh... The thing I object to is when somebody stands up behind a podium and says, this is how we are going to make your life better. And then once they're voted in, that trade is completely flushed down the toilet. Your life doesn't get better. In fact, your life gets worse whilst they make all of their mates money. Billions. That is what is infuriating to people. Well, you say they make their mates billions. It's an easy accusation to make. Um, I'd love to see the evidence for well, that. Now you the... can say, "Oh, you're going to say P P P P? Was it P V I P fast lane? Yeah, that, yeah. You, you're going to green Look, capital. When, when that was ha- when when that was happening, all of the um, the the early weeks of COVID, where everyone was desperate that the right equipment was provided to hospitals to protect the people that were working in them. I had people approach me saying, look, I can produce these things very quickly, but I, I can't get through the system. Nobody will pick up the phone. If they do, nothing happens. So on three occasions, I texted Matt Hancock and said, look, I've got these people who say they can do these things. Uh, would you would you like their details? And he said, yes, please. So I sent them the details. I have no clue what happened after that. Mm. Did I expect... Either I or, well, so I certainly didn't expect to get any money out of it. Um, did they make any money out of it? I don't know. I frankly don't care because if they if they were providing it, um, then, I mean, that was a good thing. Mm. Now, yes, I bypassed the system because I happened to have Matt Hancock's uh, mobile phone number. But I thought I was doing a good thing by doing that. And yet... Uh, a lot of people will say, well, that's outrageous that it should all go through the, the proper system. Well, in a pandemic, when it's just breaking out, when the systems aren't even there, you, you kind of have to go. But then if we peel the back the layers of this, Ian, like why are the systems not there? Why are we not prepared for a pandemic? Well, when was the last pandemic? A hundred years ago. Are we going to spend billions of pounds each year to prepare for the next one? Maybe. Answer, no, we're not. Well, we, no, maybe we should. Do, like, it's not like nobody yeah, predicted. Right. Do you want to put put your put your income tax up by five p to do that? Then fine, I'm oh, okay that's fine, with that. Is it? Yeah. All right. Okay. Raise taxes. Let's let's prepare yeah. and let's adequately fund the public services that we well, need to keep yeah. everyone safe. Let's let's add it. Let's let's put another twenty billion pounds into the health service each year. Let's do the same for teachers because teachers are underpaid. Let's do the same for prison officers who never get any publicity at all. Um, you could go through all aspects of the public sector and make a perfectly coherent argument mm. for putting in huge amounts of new resources. And people say, well, they've got all the money for furlough, so why can't they do it now? Mm. Well, because in the end. Once you spend all this money and the financial markets then lose confidence in the economy, you're buggered. I get that. So I understand that. But isn't it true to say, and look, I, I'm going to hold my hands up here. I'm not the journalist between the two of us. Uh, there is a, 
Well, I'm uh, not either. I, I never, I never describe myself as a journalist. Well, me either. Uh, but, <laughs> but I, I heard a stat. I think it's from Marina Perkis uh, that was. Oh, that it, must be reliable then. Is oh, throw in some shade, Ian Dale. You better praise. She's, she's on my cross question program next week. I did a Jeremy. I'd, I'd never met her. I did a Jeremy Vine program with her a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, she's lovely. I love Marina. Um, but I'm sure she. If if it wasn't her, I apologise wholeheartedly for attributing the nonsense that I'm about to come out with. But I'm sure that I've read or heard that for every pound you put into the NHS, the economy gets three back. Is that right? You will know. Well, I I have no clue, but I suspect not. Okay. All right. Well, we'll leave that one to. The I mean, side. I, don't, I don't know where that would would come from. I mean, look, it's easy. I mean, I'm not saying she made this up at all, but it, it is easy to come out I mean, with things like I that. I may and have made just, up that she made it a, up. A lot of people will take something like that as read, but I'd, I'd love to see the evidence for that. Mm. Okay. Because if that were true, we would be putting all our money in the NHS, would wouldn't we? we? That would because be the logical thing to do. I don't know if we would be. I think there's such an ideological uh, problem with the NHS that whatever the economic argument that stacks up for it, I think people would be like, no, no, we're in bed with private healthcare companies, so... Sorry, I know it makes sense for you, but not for us. Go fuck yourself. I think that's the that would be the vibe. Oh, I mean, again, you come out with a very lazy trope there, haven't you? Do you because think... we, we spend one in every six pounds that the government spends goes on the NHS. Mm. Um, I don't know how much you'd like to spend on the NHS, whether it's sort of two pounds in every six or three, but that there are limits. And to say that um, everyone's in bed with the private sector, do you know? Do you know what percentage of the NHS? is operated by the private sector no enlighten me six percent which has gone up from four percent admittedly mm. when labor were in power but labor put it up and when they came in i think it was three percent so it rose under theirs but i mean d does anyone seriously complain about the fact that pharmacies are owned by the private sector that effectively gp sure. practices yeah, and, are and in the look, private sector the dentistry want... is largely in the private sector yeah. I mean, the private sector is not the enemy of healthcare. Right. But so I understand. And, and look, I'm going to be somewhat pragmatic about this. I don't necessarily think uh, the NHS shouldn't have arms of it privatized in some capacity. I'm not that much of a raging Che Guevara T-shirt wearing uh, lefty in all aspects of, of my political. You do have uh, a beard, uh, though. I do. <laughs> I do yeah. uh, uh, but which is going a bit gray, I see. Oh, well, damn, there's just shade coming out. <laughs> Left, right, and centre. Uh, I'm just but, jealous because if I grow a beard, it goes ginger. Yeah, I can't even see that. that. Are you? How close are you looking at my beard? Because it's like anyway. Look, we're getting off topic here. Um, uh, yeah, I don't. I don't mind necessarily if parts of the NHS are privatised. I don't. I, I'm not ideologically wed to the idea that it should be 100% publicly funded. I think doctors and nurses probably. I don't care if a Costa Coffee place in there is privatised or if the cleaning company come in and that's part of a private thing. Um, I think my issue with it is when we see. So you said a minute ago about you know you're gonna you're about to say PPE, fast lane, and all that stuff. But then if we look at the NHS and the expense that goes on like locum doctors and contract doctors to like institutions whose shareholders donate to the Tories. It just stinks so like even if it's not as corrupt as it obviously fucking is, but even if it's not that corrupt, it you have to see how bad that well, looks. Right? Uh, all right. Well let, again, a lazy trope there about saying, oh well, because they're don donating to the Conservative Party. Do you actually think that Matt Hancock or when he was health who's the health secretary now, Stephen Barclay, mm. do you actually think but he puts an edict out to different hospitals saying, now, if you have a lack of uh, doctors, you need to get your locums from this company. And then coincidentally, that company donates to the Conservative Party. What a load of old bollocks. It's no, all no. done by NHS managers on a local level. It has nothing to do with national politicians sure. whatsoever. So I, I get that. Um, but I think broadly, it's more about strategy. I think if, if private healthcare professionals, shareholders thereof, donate to the Tories. I don't think they're just doing it out of the goodness of their hearts because they want to make the world a better place. I think they're giving money to CCHQ to buy policy, which is then passed over, like comes in the form of a bill, right? And then it becomes law. But I think if you then strategically wholesale enable way more privatization and take a really light touch. On... But they haven't done that. That's the point. I mean, as I say, the public sector involvement has gone up from uh, 4% to 6%. So, OK, in percentage terms, you can say, oh, well, that's a 50% increase or whatever. But, I mean, let, look, I 
I wrote a little book about uh, the NHS back in 2015, and I looked into this in quite a lot of detail. Okay, you can say that's eight years ago, so it's out of date. Mm. But that there is really no evidence to say that there is a wholesale takeover of the NHS by the private sector. But then again, I mean, what does privatisation actually mean? Does it mean that contracting out a cleaning contract is privatisation? Well, in theory, I suppose you could argue that uh, it's that. It, it's it's kind of semantics. It's not sort of allowing private health companies to take over the operation of masses of hospitals. There have been examples where that's happened in cases where hospitals have just essentially gone bankrupt in the public sector. I think Virgin took over a couple of hospitals. I'm not sure that worked out particularly brilliantly. Mm. Um, but the private sector ought to be the friend of the NHS rather than the enemy, because when the when the NHS has massive waiting lists, um, one of the solutions to that is to bring in uh, is to allow people to have have operations done in the private sector but paid for by the NHS. So that is a way of getting waiting lists down. So isn't this, and I'm sure you've been asked this stuff before, but if the money that we put into the NHS, is, did you say like one in every six pounds? Yeah, it's about right. it'll, this financial year. It's 160 billion pounds. Right. So if it's and that's if it's gone up from 100 billion since 2010. So if it's 160 billion, and that's let's say, for argument's sake, too much, what if you staff the NHS correctly with the right number of doctors and nurses that you actually need to treat the patients that we do have on perm salaries, rather than hemorrhaging this money on emergency contract staff that comes in through the private companies? Yeah. The 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 cost of running it would come down. Quite substantial. I totally, I totally agree, and I think that's been a ma- major failure over mm. the last. Well, you could go back a long time, probably, um, and and the the government will rightly point out that as of now there are many more doctors and nurses than there were ten years ago, but then they don't point out that the demands on the NHS are much more than they were ten years ago. Um, the population has increased quite a lot since then. Um, and they have failed, whether it's they or whether it's NHS managers have failed to attract new people into the NHS, whether it's nurses, doctors or whatever. And you can blame that partly on certainly relatively low salaries. But then even when you talk about salaries for nurses now, it's not like it was 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, the salaries, the average, the entrance, sorry, the average salary for a nurse is now 34,000. Mm. I'm not saying that's a fortune by any stretch of the imagination, but it's 5,000 over the national average. But, so the nurses are not living in penury or should not be. Mm. And all these stories about, oh, well, nurses are going to food banks. Well, there may be the odd one that does, but maybe that's a nurse who's working one day a week and, and because she may have children and that's the, all she can do. So I'm not saying that there are no nurses going to food banks, but if you're if you're on a five-day-a-week nursing contract, there is no way that you should be going to a food bank. Is but it... even saying that, there'll be people watching this and listening to this now shouting, oh, see, he, he, he pretends he's a bit left-wing now, but he's still the same old uncaring Tory. No, no, I think, like, isn't it, <laughs> like, we're, so at the moment we're focusing, we're honing in, like, straight on nurses, their salaries and investment in the NHS, but actually there are these other contributing factors in the shape of the housing crisis. So, yep. you know, 34K now uh for a career or for a job that paid probably 32k 10 years ago with the total absence of wage growth whilst rents have just gone boom boom no i accept that i totally accept that it is i think it's a lot harder and it Um, it does depend where where you live i mean if you're in london and the southeast um oh you're fucked yeah well i wonder about quite that but um you're you're not going to be afford to get on the housing ladder at all on that kind of salary and even if you're on 60 or seventy thousand, it would be difficult enough yeah yeah i mean my mother-in-law knows i think she's pretty good terms with um with their local gp and you traditionally think you know gp pretty good job pretty good income they are renting they are like it's him his three kids his wife i don't know if the wife works or whatever but i was jarred when i heard that i was like you know a gp in south like not a particularly great part of southeast london and he can't get on the ladder because Mm. you know the nearest family houses are like you know a million <laughs> you have to be a literal yeah, millionaire absolutely i mean somebody said to me the other day well, why, why don't you have a flat in london and mm. why do you go home to kent every every night and i said well for the simple reason the only point in, in having a flat in london would be is if it was in central london and you can't get a one-bedroom flat in central london for half a million 
Yeah. And very few people are either going to have half a million spare or going to be able to afford a, a second property with a mortgage for that amount. I mean, you'd have to be on a fantastic salary for, for that to happen. And I, I mean, I'm not pretending I don't earn, earn well, but um, I couldn't afford to do that. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's a, so we, we live out in the shittest town in Hampshire. Um, well, that's, that's your choice. <laughs> is it is it though uh i mean we used to live in london we lived in like ealing um my girlfriend lived in peckham and slowly we got priced out priced out to guild well, she, she's gone up in the world not sure about you <laughs> yeah well yeah i said i mean didn't i say a minute ago like the one of the rougher parts of southeast london um but yeah i mean we just got priced out further and further and then you know we bought here um and i'm on i would categorize it as a pretty comfortable salary uh, but with the mortgage interest rates and everything as they are, yeah. I'm seriously concerned about what will happen to us. And I'm like, if we're as fucked as this, I yeah. don't know what's going to happen to the rest of well, the population. And I'm afraid it's going to get worse this year. Not because I think the economic situation generally is going to improve. But I think, and I remember saying this on the radio about five years ago, I said all these people getting fixed rate mortgages at sort of like one one 1.5% or whatever. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> And they don't remember what I remember when I got my first mortgage, when interest rates went up to 14%. And um, you've always got to think, well, what's the worst that could happen? And I don't think many people have thought about that. And the worst that can happen is when your fixed rate mortgage finishes and then it goes up by God knows what. I mean, my mortgage here is, we got it in 2002, when you could literally get 100% 100% interest interest rate uh, mortgage. Um, and in the last year, my monthly repayments have gone up from £250 a month to £1,100 a month. Fucking hell. Now, I can, I, I can cope with that, but we, we also have a house in Norfolk where we remortgaged it about 18 months ago, and I couldn't remember what the deal we'd agreed was. <laughs> so I rang up my mortgage guy and I said, um, can, you, can you just tell me what we're on? And he said, oh, you're on five years fixed rate at 2.4%. I thought, thank God for that. Yeah, you're lucky there. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, we're, we're at the point now, I mean, other factors come into it here where we're actually going to sell it because we're not there enough. And um, I mean, the, the government now allow councils to double the council tax for second homes, which I, I can see why, the, why they, the council might do that. And in North Norfolk, they are going to do it. Mm. So uh, we are going to get out. Yeah, fair play. Liquidate those assets in the tough economy. Yeah. Um, listen, there's, there's one more thing I wanted to just run by you uh, if we have if we have time. Um, so I, I have various friends who uh, appear on uh, panels like like the one that you host uh, for LBC, but... Um, uh, but perhaps in different areas of the media. Um, and some of the feedback that I get, I've never met any of these individuals, so I'm willing to take this with a pinch of salt. I thought you said they were your friends. Uh, no, I've met Marina, um, but I don't right. know that, the rest of them <laughs> that well. Um, okay. But some of the feedback that I've got from people who appear on these panels uh, suggests that some of the right wing or you know center right types who go on these shows and say you know the typical right wing angle to whatever the topic is that day they then sort of come clean in the green room and say oh, i don't really believe that shit you know it just makes good tv it just makes like we were saying earlier about twitter and about the influence that it has on mainstream media this is I've I've had this feedback from different people about different sort of quote unquote right wing faces. That's incredibly troubling to me, and I don't, I don't like I don't want to believe that it's true. I want to believe that these individuals, even though they have different beliefs and sensibilities to me, yeah. that they do genuinely believe that stuff. But having this coming from different sources telling me that they don't really believe it, that it just makes for good television, is almost sort of the second pillar to that whole. Piers Morgan, like, we just want to see a funny, like, you know, angry debate thing. What's, I don't expect you to name names or, you know, shame anyone, but what is your experience of that? Do you think there is a sort of a dearth of, credibility is probably too strong a word, but is it like, have you come across that stuff? Do people kind of fake it? Is it... (sighs) 
I have never heard anyone, well, no one's ever said that directly to me that they do that. Right. I think sometimes when you go on a panel show and you're up against someone from the opposite side of the fence where they're deliberately, I mean, for example, the Jeremy Vine show on Channel 5, mm. they always have someone from the right, someone from the left, and they, they effectively want a bit of a row. Mm. So they'll always put me on with somebody that they think I'm going to have a row with, like Dr. Shola Shogbamimo, who actually I'm really, I mean, I met her on that show and we've become quite good friends, but we disagree on virtually everything. But we generally do it in quite a nice way. And I, I, I am determined when I go on a show like that, not to lose my rag because uh, often you you can do and particularly if you're a white middle-aged bloke against a black young woman you're never going to come off best yeah so i but sometimes you become a little bit of an extreme version of yourself if you're goaded i mean when i was on with marina who i got on perfectly well with i did fit there were there were times in those sort of what is it two two hours where I would have quite liked to have jumped down her throat, but but restrained, <laughs> restrained myself. And I'm sure she felt the same. I, I don't think this is an exclusive thing to the right. There are plenty of people on the left who do that as well, I imagine. Um, because, and I think this is particularly true on the, the sort of Corbynite left, where you have to prove your ideological purity. Mm. Uh, and there is a that's the same on on the right. It was certainly true in the nineteen eighties. So you had to prove yourself to be a true sound. I mean, there's this word "sound" that Thatcherites always used about each other, and it always sounded very sort of public school and sort of stupid to me. But um, I, I mean, ideology does play a part in politics, and you do sometimes feel you have to prove yourself and there are plenty of pundits who go on gb news for example or talk tv that i won't have on my program because i just think they're fakes mm. and i mean i do have well my producer has a sort of blacklist where we we put names on it where we think well no i mean we had one i mean i always want to try and get a really good balance not just between labor and conservative but sort of left versus right so on mm. cross question for example like my version of any questions I do try and have a political balance, but if I have somebody on who I just think, and I, I try and have a sort of reasonable male-female balance, and I try to um, have a, a good proportion of ethnic minority voices on, and I can think of one example, um, I better not give too many details, but this person had... Um, come to our attention I, I can't remember which program it was but I mean she talked a good game but she came on our show and it was just facile rubbish she was spouting fr from a very right-wing perspective right and I just said to my producer I said don't book her again it's life life is too short I don't want to I don't try and generate rows on that show I want to have intelligent sometimes quite light-hearted discussion that people will actually want to listen to i don't want your predictable party political scoring match and it very rarely becomes that but um and i i if somebody's good i'll have them back but if if they take the piss or if they're just boring or gratuitously argumentative i don't want them on again mm. yeah i think that's a it's probably well i was about to say there's a good note to end on but i've got I've got some quick fire questions for you, Ian. Okay. Will you indulge me? Hold on. Love a good quick fire. Right. I mean, it's a podcast, so you have to do these things, right? Um, okay, right. Question number one. Here we go. What song is on your Spotify playlist right now? I don't really use Spotify. Oh. Wait, do you, um, have you got Apple Music or something? Or No, I've, I have, I have 42,000 songs on my phone, so I just put them on shuffle often. And if you but press if you want, play right now? Do you, do you, so. All right, if, if I press play right now, I will do what that in Ian just Dale a second. To? Oh, no, that's, that's the end of Midnight Sun by Asia. Let's see what comes up next, shall we? Gonna... Oh, my God. What is it? I can't hear it. Gina G. Oh. A little bit more. <laughs> Blinding. I'm a bit of a Eurovision addict. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Uh, what's the last thing you said that you really wish you hadn't? Um, oh, that's a terrible question. I mean, I did say I'm not a journalist, right? There must have been something in this week's podcast with Jackie Smith. 
where I think we were talking about her pelvic thrusts. Um, wow. So it's probably something to do with that. Nice. Yeah. Okay. I'll, <laughs> I'll take that. Uh, what episode of your life would you donate to a box set series entitled Times I Was a Bellend? Probably when um, I was involved in a fracas on Brighton Seafront, which um, has become, I mean, it, it's probably the only thing I'll ever be remembered for, where an anti-nuclear protester was trying to get in a picture on Good Morning Britain, or GMTV, as I think it was in those days. And um, my author, this is when I was in publishing, Damien McBride, was sort of talking about his book, and this guy was sort of kept trying to get in the picture, and the sound engineer was trying to edge him out, so I thought I'd give him a hand. <laughs> So I, I grabbed his rucksack and pulled him away. And he swung round and tried to hit me, but he failed. But the, the momentum of that meant that we both sort of got went onto the ground. And I just sort of sat on him to stop him protesting anymore. And it was all filmed by all the TV cameras that were there. And um, is it still is it still on YouTube? Because oh, you can dig find it up. on YouTube. Although there is a <laughs> there is a heavily edited version of it, which makes it look far worse than it was. I mean, I didn't punch him, I didn't kick him, I wasn't violent at all. My only thing was I didn't want him to get in the in that picture and distract Damien. That's so. There's um, something so funny about like a protester who wants the world to be a more peaceful place. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> I if you if you look at the narrative of this, every time I hit the headlines for whatever reason. Um, people on the left will post this YouTube video and describe it as me beating up a pensioner. Oh, wow. Now, this guy was not, well, I have no idea how old he was, but apparently he had been in the SAS, so I think I was a, a bit of a disadvantage there. Yeah. Um, but I got a police caution for it okay. because one of my journalistic colleagues reported it to the police, so as you, as you would. Yeah. Um, it's a bit like sort of when Boris's neighbours recorded that row that he and Carrie had, and the, the neighbours recorded it and sent it to the Guardian, as you do. Uh, well. And... Um, so, but I, I only got a caution because Caroline Lucas from the Green Party had been uh, arrested on the same day for some sort of protest on a street, and she. So I, once I heard that, because I was actually in the in the police station, and they clearly didn't want anything to do with what I was involved in, but they had to go through the motions, and then the news came through about Caroline Lucas, and then suddenly the, the police constable disappeared and a detective superintendent appeared. And I thought at that point, they're not going to let this go. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I thought I'm in a bit of trouble here. And uh, anyway, I, I'm, that was in 2013. If that happened now, I would be out of a job, I'm sure. Yeah. But LBC were very good about it at the time. You'd be cancelled. Um, but I think so, now, the way social media is, I just don't think that I'd survive that. It's just so, like, you're so reasonable. And, I, you know, I keep saying this, like, you're, you know, a reasonable, measured guy. Like, I can't imagine you losing it or, like, you know, pulling... Oh, oh believe me, I can. <laughs> really? Well, okay. I, I, have, I, I, do have quite, I do have quite a short temper, but yeah. I'm one of these really annoying people that I, I sort of blow up over something pretty insignificant... And then 30 seconds later, I'm back to normal again. Yeah. Whereas most people, if they if they blow up, they they hold a lot of resentment. Probably they have to sleep it off and they, they might be back to normal the next day. Well, with me, it's after 30 seconds. And I've learned over the years that people find that really weird and mm. difficult to cope with. I mean, my partner, we have very, very rarely ever have a row. But if we do, he has to sleep it off. And I know not to go near him until the next day. Yeah. Whereas you process the Whereas, anger very efficiently. Just yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. I've got, uh, have I got how many more? Oh, okay. Two more questions for you. So, okay. um, if you hadn't gotten into politics, journalism, what would you have become? Probably a teacher. Um, okay. when I went to university, I intended to be a German teacher and then politics struck and I had the virus ever since. Um, I've always wanted to work for a missing persons charity and, and I might well do. I mean, if LBC ended tomorrow, that's one of the things that I would consider doing. Um, but probably teaching. What's your favorite swear word? The favorite one, the one I use most is fuck. Um, <laughs> but I use far worse words than that as well. Sometimes I've never... I don't think I've ever sworn on the radio by mistake, but I've got a little trick that I do. If I want to say uh, something is rubbish, I obviously can't say bollocks because it's a banned word from Ofcom. Mm. So I say grollocks, and everybody knows what I mean. Yeah. 
Now, you can't do that with every swear word, but um, it, it's you, quite good to do it sometimes. It's a bit like, so around my kids, I obviously temper my language. I can't say fuck. I'll say fudge. I yeah. can't say, I can't drop the C-bomb, so I'll maybe put C-H at the front of it. But uh, but maybe it's a little bit like that. How does that, how does that help? Uh, well, then they think that fudge is like the word that you say when you stump your toe. Yeah, but Rather the other than... one? What if you put ch? It's just... oh, <laughs> you're oh, I see. Chunt. I was thinking it would still be k. <laughs> no, no, it's not a silent h. Uh, right, okay. Uh, okay. Well, so you know, sometimes it is. Depends how mad I am. Um, ladies and gents, thank you so much to my guest tonight, uh, Ian Dale. Uh, definitely go and check out his For the Many podcast featuring uh, Jackie Smith. Um, check out his books also, The Prime Ministers, uh, The Presidents, and On This Day in Politics, which is out very, very soon. Yeah, I thought you'd have one to brandish in front of the camera. Oh, oh, one of your books? Yeah. No, I don't. They're all on my bookshelf. Back yeah, in the I'm house. sure they are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can I can I mention a new podcast that I'm starting? Sure. Yeah. It starts on the sixth of March, and it's called the Irish Taoiseach, and I'm interviewing Irish journalists and historians about each of the fifteen people who have served in the office of Taoiseach of the Republic of Ireland. And uh, you can subscribe to that right now, wherever you get your podcast from. And um, but let me quick quiz question for you: Do you know what the, Do you know what the plural of Taoiseach is? No idea. Tishig. Is it? But it's spelled T-A-I-O-S-I-G-H. So when I was doing the trails for this, I kept saying T-shy. And then, of course, I get complaints from people in Ireland saying, no, 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 that's wrong. Yeah, yeah. You're being culturally insensitive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, guys, last, uh, last mention from me before we wrap up tonight. Um, so if you are enjoying these shows, uh, I do them two, three times a week. Uh, Friday nights are always guested. Wednesdays are the solo shows. Um, but if you are enjoying them, maybe consider jumping onto the Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash aid Thompson. Um, the tiers on the, uh, Patreon start at three pounds a month, which is just enough really to buy me a coffee, just to sort of doff of the cap to say, well done, Aid, enjoying the podcast, keep it up. Um, for that, you get these benefits. You get uh, the podcast episodes two days before everyone else. Then two days later, they reemerge on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and, and so on. We've got a Discord chat. Uh, myself and the rest of the Patreon backers all jump in there and we share memes and we talk shit. Um, you get tickets to the live shows like last week's Riot Society, which was a sold out gig at 21 Soho, uh, 200 seats. It was me, Danny Price, a bunch of others. Uh, it was great fun. Um, and those tickets went out to the Patreons first uh, before it sold out. We're also doing London meetups. We did one in October in Brick Lane, doing another one in April. So that will go out to the Patreon soon. And also, finally, most important, you get credited, nay, named and shamed at the end of episodes like this. So thank you once again to the Patreon backers, Stuart, Anthony, Pingu, David, Alex and Chris, and Rax, Silent, T-Rex, Oliver, Sarah and Kerry. Thank you so, so much for continuing your support of the show. I'll be back next week for a solo one on Wednesday. Thanks once again to my guest tonight, Ian Dale. I'm out of here.